Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, January 18th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historian and New York Historical Society trustee Neil Ferguson discusses his book, The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power, From the Freemasons to Facebook. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for coming uh, this evening. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you, are you a network kind of person or a hierarchy kind of person? <laughs> ask yourself about your own place in the world. Are you a node in a network with multiple edges connecting you to the whole of Manhattan? I know some of you are, so don't deny it. Or are you really someone who prefers to be in the org chart, ideally at the top of a pyramid of clearly defined power? That's a question I asked myself when I started to think about this project. I'm going to show some pictures this evening. This is bad news for people sitting there and there, uh, because those pictures are going to be extremely hard to see. Uh, But I'll do my best to compensate for that by speaking articulately and explaining what they signify. The reason for showing some pictures is that, in some ways, we have to depict networks to understand exactly what they signify. And I set about writing this book first of all, to understand a fundamental problem that had been bugging me for most of my career. For most of my career, I was drawn to write about networks, but I didn't really understand that well how they worked. You might be wondering why the book is called The Square and the Tower. Well, some of you may recognize that image, if you are fond of Tuscany, then you've almost certainly been to the beautiful town of of Siena, where you can see this spectacular juxtaposition of a square and a tower, the beautiful Piazza del Campo with the Torre del Mangia, uh, extraordinary architecture dating back to the 13th, 14th century. And that's what I want you to think about. The tower, the shadow of which you see here, is the symbol and often the actual location of hierarchical power, of governance. The square is where people network. It's where people meet, chat. It may be where they trade, but remember... Markets are only one kind of network. There are many others. And in the case of the Piazza del Campo, and this is true to the present day, uh, there's also the funny kind of networking we engage in when we play sports, because they hold horse races in this extraordinary square. The argument of the book is that most of history 
should be understood in terms of the tension between these two different organizational forms. The hierarchical structure of power and the informal distributed network in which we socialize, in which we trade, in which we engage in all kinds of different activities, not necessarily with any formal leadership. Now, it's become a commonplace, a cliche, one hears it almost every day, that the world has never been more networked, and that's measurably true. It's at least a a third of humanity, maybe it's even more now, that is on social media. In the case of a developed country like the United States, the percentage is astonishingly high with particularly younger people, obsessively online all the time, checking their Facebook accounts or their Twitter feeds and using their smartphones to remain uh, permanently connected to giant social networks bigger than anything that have ever existed before. But I want to emphasize bigger and faster, but not qualitatively new, because social networks have always existed. These are the biggest, these are the fastest, but it is not as if Mark Zuckerberg invented social networks. One of my reasons for writing this book was that when I moved to Stanford about a year and a half ago, I was surprised to find that in the eyes of people in Silicon Valley, history began at the time of the Google IPO. (laughs) And everything before that was the Stone Age. No record survived, nor was it worth finding out about. So I was a little hurt um, to to discover that all my hard-won knowledge was essentially regarded as uh, junk. The point of the book is partly to teach Silicon Valley a history lesson. And boy, did Silicon Valley need a history lesson. Because things haven't quite worked out the way the the techno-optimists, if you like that phrase, imagined. For 20 years, more, we've been hearing utopian visions of what would happen to a world in which everything was connected. A world where anyone anywhere may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence, or conformity. That was John Perry Barlow's famous Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace back in the 1990s. And one gets the same almost messianic uh, tone in much that Mark Zuckerberg has said lately last year at Harvard in his commencement address. He said this, all people want to connect. The great arc of human history bends towards people coming together in ever greater numbers from tribes to cities to nations to achieve things we couldn't do on our own. And who could possibly think that was a bad thing? I think for many of us, it seemed self-evident that a, a planet in which we were all connected would be, in some sense, an improvement. <laughs> but history had the last laugh, or perhaps the first one. 2016 was the annus horribilis of the Western internet. 
certainly of the liberal internet, I think that one could not understand Brexit and one could not understand Donald Trump's uh, victory in 2016 without reference uh, to the giant network platforms and the role that they played. To be precise, and let me not beat about the bush, no Facebook, no Trump, no Facebook, no Brexit. These turned out to be the vital tools of a populist insurrection democratic politics that took most people, and particularly people in cities like New York and London, by surprise. My quote of the year from last year came from one of the founders of Twitter, Evan Williams, who told the New York Times, I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place. I was wrong about that. Uh, To which, in my view, there is only one possible response. (laughs) Well, duh. Storm clouds have been gathering over Silicon Valley for some time now. Uh, As gradually people realize the extent to which our public sphere has been transformed by companies such as Facebook, but also Google, also Twitter, as we begin to comprehend what it means when 45% of Americans get their news from Facebook, as we begin to fathom the role played by a rogue network, the Russian intelligence network, in penetrating both the Democratic Party and the Trump campaign, we are slowly, and I'd say slowly, grasping that something profoundly dangerous has been created. If we thought five or six years ago that the massive online networks would be bad news for dictatorships and good news for democracies, we are having to revise that hypothesis and fast. So what I want to do this evening uh, is tell you a story. Do some history. I want to leave aside the fancier network science that is in the book and concentrate, as this is the New York Historical Society, on a new narrative, a new way of thinking about the events that have led us here. And so let me begin with an analogy The analogy is between now and 500 years ago. I want to suggest to you that we are living through one of the great ages of network disruption, a period when a technological change has empowered social networks relative to established hierarchies. I want to suggest to you that these are unusual times. For most of history, the hierarchy rules and the social network is weak. The tower looms over the square. Only occasionally does the balance change. And it needs some shift in technology to empower 
empower the social networks and challenge the men in the towers. One of those was the printing press. 500 years later, another was the personal computer and the internet. There's a lovely paper here uh, that I'm citing by a man named Dittmar uh, that was published a couple of years ago, which shows that the effect of the printing press on the price and volume of book production is comparable with the effect of innovations in computer technology uh, on the price and volume of personal computers. Dramatic decline in price, exponential increase in volume. The only real difference in these charts is that our revolution in information technology happened about an order of magnitude faster. Uh, And so things have been faster paced, but the direction, the shape of change has been fundamentally similar. So two ages when technology empowered social networks and challenged the authority of hierarchies. One beginning really in the in the period of the early 16th century, by which time there were enough printing presses spread throughout Europe for there to be a true distributed network, and another in our lifetimes, starting really uh, in the 1970s, but becoming extraordinarily powerful from the 90s right down to the present. Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King Jr., had to correct an interviewer about that today. <sighs> what do they teach them in schools these days? Luther's dream was the biblical vision of a priesthood of all believers. Scripture sets before us Christ alone as mediator, atoning sacrifice, high priest and intercessor. Luther thought if everybody could read and everybody had access to a vernacular version of the Bible then there would be the priesthood of all believers. There would no longer be this mediation of a corrupt uh, church. That was the 16th century equivalent, I think, of Mark Zuckerberg's vision of a global community. Well, it didn't quite work out the way Luther had intended. Why not? Well, because... Large networks of the sort that the printing press had created do not, in fact, produce homogenous priesthoods of all believers or global communities. Actually, what tends to happen is polarization. There's a thing called homophily that causes people to self-sort into clusters. That's exactly what has happened in our time. It is exactly what happened in the 16th century. The people in places like that part of Germany from which Luther came, tended to agree with Luther. And the Reformation caught on there. Except some people wanted to go further, like Calvin, Zwingli. But others, perhaps in more rural parts of Europe, regarded the whole thing as a ghastly heresy. And so, within a very short space of time, Reformation led to counter-Reformation. 130 years of intermittent religious civil war that turned parts of Europe uh, into a giant charnel house. Polarization and conflict were the consequences. 
not the priesthood of all believers that Luther had been inspired by. And this is the first insight that I want you to grasp. The printing press had other unintended consequences. If you could print and translate the Bible, you could do it with any text. And so the Reformation proved to be just the first of a series of network-driven revolutions in European thought. The scientific revolution came next. And then the Enlightenment. Some wonderful work going on at Stanford on the Enlightenment network. We can actually graph the network. We can see, for example, here's Voltaire's network of correspondence, heavily concentrated on France, as you might imagine. But when you look at it in the round, extraordinary far-reaching. The Enlightenment network spread further than the Reformation network had spread. This was a, a, a true network, propelled uh, by the exchange of ideas, both printed and written, over sometimes enormous distances. And the Enlightenment had political implications. Nowhere were those political implications better understood than in Britain's American colonies and then in France. Now, this is a gem of a graph. Apologies to those who are squinting to see it. Because this is a graph that tries to make sense of the revolutionary network that produced the American Revolution. What you can see when you draw this network of all the different societies, clubs of revolutionary or pre-revolutionary Boston is who the most important people were. No, not important in the usual historical sense. Important in the sense of their connectedness. There were two people in the Boston network who were super connected. Something that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about a few years ago, actually. Uh, but this is a much more formal presentation than, than, than Malcolm did. What we see here is that, uh, that Paul Revere and Joseph Warren were the two most important nodes in the revolutionary or patriotic network. If we British had removed those gentlemen, uh, <laughs> instead of letting them ride around Massachusetts, uh, spreading all kinds of seditious news, uh, the revolution might have been in trouble because the network without them is a great deal less uh, dense and would have been a great deal less effective. One thing I'm able to show in this uh, book is that Revere's believed when he goes on his ride, not, not just because of what he's saying, but because of who he is. Because everybody knows Paul Revere. Because he's in all of these different clubs, or nearly all of them. One thing that Malcolm Gladwell didn't talk about, though, and it was also uh, omitted from most, I think, of the mainstream literature on the American Revolution, was the extraordinary importance of one particular network to the revolution. And that was the network of, of Freemasons. To an extent that I think has been understated in most literature on the subject, the American Revolution was based, at least in part, on the network of Masonic lodges that had been established in Britain's American colonies. This illustration here of George Washington in his Masonic regalia is a pretty powerful uh, illustration of my point. Revere was a Mason. 
Warren was a Mason. A significant number of the leaders of the American Revolution uh, were Freemasons. Now, this is part of the fun of my book. Because most of the time, historians who write about this stuff are not entirely respectable. (laughs) Indeed, if you Google Freemasons and American Revolution, you enter a parallel world inhabited in substantial measure by conspiracy theorists. There are respectable scholars of this stuff, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of non-respectable conspiracy theory literature about it too. I began to see as I was writing this book that uh, one reason the book hadn't been written before was that most historians, professional academic historians, uh, are much too risk-averse to go anywhere near this stuff. The same applies, for example, to the Illuminati. Now, some of you will have heard of the Illuminati. Yeah, maybe you c- came across it in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, if you Google the Illuminati, you enter the ultimate wormhole of conspiracy theory. Interestingly, the Illuminati were, in fact, a subset or a sub-network within the network of Masonic lodges. The Illuminati, to which George Washington did not belong, uh, were a secret society founded in South Germany in the 1770s, at the time of the American Revolution, with the avowed intent of penetrating Freemasonry and spreading radical Enlightenment ideas by that means. The outcome of the American Revolution was, as we all know, a triumphant success. The same could not be said of another revolution, one that broke out in France in 1789, which has often been attributed to the influence of the Freemasons. Wrongly, in fact, because they were significantly less important in the French Revolution than in the American. The French Revolution illustrates an important point, that network-driven phenomena can produce great creativity, for sure. Who could argue with the Enlightenment? But they can also produce anarchy. And France descended into anarchy. Once the hierarchical power of the monarchy was swept away, just as Edmund Burke correctly foresaw With astonishing speed, France descended into bloody violence and terror. One of the great questions of our time is, why was the American Revolution so different in its outcome from the French? I think part of the answer lies here. And it's at that point that the pendulum begins to swing in the other direction. If you imagine the pendulum of power swinging towards social networks from around 1517 when Luther makes his first great statement against the Catholic Church, from around about the 1790s, the pendulum begins to swing back to hierarchy, back to central control. What's the answer to the problem of the French Revolution? The answer is Napoleon. Only one man, says he, can solve this problem. And in due course, although he himself is unable to create a stable empire, hierarchy triumphs over Napoleon himself as the five great powers of Europe re-establish order at the Congress of Vienna. 
You see where my narrative is going here. After centuries, when networks appeared to run amok, they overshot in the France of the 1790s. And from that moment on, I want to suggest to you right the way down to our own time, it was hierarchies that got the upper hand. What is the history of the 19th and 20th century? I believe it is the history of an increasingly hierarchical form of government, the supreme example of which was Stalin's Soviet Union. A system in which one man claimed power over even the innermost thoughts of the citizens. A system in which social networks not sanctioned by the Communist Party could land you in Siberia or in front of a firing squad. Some of you will be familiar with the work of Isaiah Berlin. Some of you will be admirers of the poetry of Anna Akhmatova. I tell the story of how their meeting in Leningrad, one night uh, in 1945, aroused the ire of Joseph Stalin. Because two people had met without the official sanction of his regime. Akhmatova's family was persecuted for a single encounter. That, it seems to me, is the perfect example of hierarchical power in which no nodes can be connected other than through Stalin, other than with his approval. The technology that had arisen in the course of the 19th century, the telegraph, the railroad, even the steamship, and then later the telephone. The technologies of the 19th and the early 20th century lent themselves to centralized control. Steve Kotkin's biography of Stalin, which I highly recommend, describes how Stalin would tap the phone lines in Moscow, how he relished control over the telephone network. But all that technology could be controlled centrally. Railway networks had hubs. Why did the Bolsheviks come to power? They got control of the key railway hubs. And so that explains why, beginning with Bonaparte, the pendulum swung back towards hierarchical structures and social networks became effectively illegal. The extreme cases were, of course, the Soviet Union, as well as Hitler's Germany, not to mention Mao's China. But what's fascinating is that hierarchical structures also came to predominate uh, in the Western world too. Here's the organizational study for General Motors from 1921. This is how the 20th century thought about organization. Regardless of political regime, the org chart. And that way of thinking about structures, corporate and political, seems to me distinctively a mid-20th century way of thinking. I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. He plays a part in this story too. Not many network phenomena succeeded in challenging hierarchical power in the mid-20th century. Most attempts failed. The civil rights movement is an unusual exception. A movement that was authentically network-driven 
that broke through, overcame all kinds of challenges in the form of discrimination. And I show why in the book. The fundamental foundation of civil rights was the African-American churches. And because, as one of my sources says in the book, because of the habits of organization that surrounded church going, the social network of civil rights was extremely resilient and could withstand the persecution, could withstand the hostility uh, of the southern states and ultimately achieve victory. The real start of the networked age, I think, was the 1970s. Why do I say that? Because in the 1970s, a great crisis swept a president from power and challenged the imperial presidency as an institution. Some of you know I'm working on, on the life of Henry Kissinger. I'm halfway through or a third of the way through if Henry continues to live until he's 150, (laughs) which he may. The reason I wrote this book was partly to understand how to write volume two. Volume one was about an intellectual, an intellectual whose, whose journey from refugee to public intellectual to national security advisor was a remarkable story of, of intellectual far power. But I think volume two will be about networks. And it will be about how the world shifted from the hierarchical structures of the mid-20th century to the looser decentralized networks of the 1970s and and of our time since. Silicon Valley is full of technological determinists. They think it's the technology that drives the historical process. But let me put a paradoxical suggestion to you. Could it perhaps be that the internet was born on the west coast of the United States in the 1970s because of the chaos that swept the federal government at that time? And in particular, that swept the national security establishment. There was an internet in the Soviet Union. Its uh, base was Kiev, You might think of it as the internet, (laughs) because the project to have a distributed network of computers to help uh, organize the Soviet system was killed by the Soviet finance ministry. Well, the internet just happened because nobody really bothered to stop it. It was the decentralization of defense research, and particularly defense research in California that made the great innovations we know today as the internet possible. So I want to reverse the causation for you. I want to suggest to you that it was really the crisis of the imperial presidency, brought about above all by the Vietnam War, that allowed the ARPANET to be turned into the internet, created opportunities for these young men to build an entirely new economic model, In that sense, the technology was a product of a political crisis rather than the political crisis being the product of technological change. 
One of the interesting things about the great crisis of the 1970s is that the United States withstood it. Those of us old enough to remember the 1970s didn't entirely take that for granted at the time. You think things are bad now? You're suffering from amnesia. It was much worse in the early 1970s. But in the 1980s, the Soviet Union and its empire in Eastern Europe suffered a bigger crisis, and it did not survive it. This is a a graph of the the Polish anti-communist network, which ultimately made the revolution against communist rule possible. Solidarity grew out of this network of different civic associations over which the Communist Party could not exert power. This also illustrates that you don't need technology to have a revolutionary network. Did any of these groups have access to the printing press? To the telephone network? No. The literature of dissidents in Eastern Europe had to be produced in the most rudimentary way via Zamistan and circulated in limited copies. If you're a technological determinist... This presents a problem for you because the successful revolutions against Soviet power ran on a shoestring with the most limited possible technology. Another network with very limited technology was the network that struck this city on 9-11-2001, the event, incidentally, that determined me to move to the United States and indeed to accept a post at New York University. The network of Al-Qaeda, the network that inflicted this great harm on New York, is graphed here. Uh, Valdis Krebs did this uh, fantastic bit of research entirely independently to show how the 9-11 plotters had been organized. Uh, This was work done at the time, subsequently Uh, refined, showing exactly who the key nodes were in that network. The networked age keeps on surprising us. The Trump network completely surprised the experts in American politics in 2016, who gave him hilariously low probabilities of success throughout that year. Because the pundits didn't understand that the political game was the next thing to be revolutionized by the networks made possible by the internet. We need to do more work, I'm still actually doing this kind of work, to understand exactly how the public sphere has been disrupted by networks. But the story of my book is that you can't understand recent political events in this country just in terms of the personality of one man. Do you realize that 90% of all conversations in this city are about the personality of Donald Trump? (laughs) Are you not bored of it yet? I am. I have a new rule in our house. He who must not be named is the correct form of reference. And as I tried to explain on a show called Morning Joe that I believe he watches the other morning, this is not the only thing you need to know about. The structure of politics surely we've learned this from history, is as important as personality. And one cannot understand the structure of politics in the United States today until one understands the way in which networks now operate to disrupt established hierarchies and to penetrate established hierarchies. What was 2016 if not a tale of networks attacking networks? 
the Russian intelligence network penetrating, as I mentioned before, both the major parties. What has happened is that we have all become as connected as the financial world was on the eve of the financial crisis. And 2016 was, in a sense, of a political crisis comparable in magnitude to the financial crisis of 2008. We were told that we were all going to be netizens. We were all going to live in a brave new world of horizontal, flat democracy, all speaking truth to power on the internet. But that's not what happened. Because while you may think of yourself as a netizen, to the owners of Google and Facebook and the rest, you're just a user. And the real structural change that fascinates me is the structural change of the network itself. It's not a lattice in which all nodes are equal with the same number of edges each. A new hierarchy has emerged, the hierarchy in Silicon Valley, that owns the network. And unless you were smart enough to buy Facebook stock and Google stock and Apple stock and Amazon stock, you're not an owner. You're just a user. A different story has played out on the other side of the world, in China. In China, a parallel ecosystem now exists of giant companies. Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. The network platforms that rival the fan companies of Silicon Valley, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. In China, the arrangement is different because in China, the networks know their place. They know that their place is to be subordinate to the hierarchy. Here's Jack Ma the founder of Alibaba. I don't need to tell you who he's smiling at. Jack Ma said last year, the political and legal system of the future is inseparable from big data. Bad guys won't even be able to walk into the square. The square. That's the Chinese outcome. The networks will make the data available to the party hierarchy on demand. What does, that, what does that mean for us? I think it means that the conflict between Washington and Silicon Valley is in a, a very early inning. This was a fun exchange from last year between the president, he who must not be named, and Chairman Zuck. <laughs> I want to suggest to you that this is just the latest iteration of the age-old battle between the square, that's the Facebook campus, which is rather square-like if you visit it, and the tower, a building that you all know only too well. That is the new framework of history that Louise referred to, and I hope you have found this historical narrative at least something of an antidote to the endless discussion of the personality of him who must not be named. Thank you very much indeed.
So now I have a tremendously difficult task that has just been uh, presented to me, and that is to go through your questions uh, and choose uh, some that I'm capable of answering. It's one of those unseen examinations that used to strike terror into my heart as a schoolboy. Uh, so let me see where to begin. Uh, I'm going for the ones that I can read first. How does networking become tribalism, asks one of you, a great questions. And what are the dangers of the latter? We are hardwired by evolution uh, to think tribally. Uh, my wife always reminds me, she, she's from Somalia. She's much more interesting than me. You, you have to put up with me. But if you were lucky, you'd have Ayan Hirsi Ali here tonight. And Ayan always says, Neil, you have to understand that uh, so many of the societies in, in Africa and, and, and the, in the Middle East are fundamentally tribal. You can't understand the way they operate until you know what that's like. And I say, come on, I'm from Scotland. We don't have tribes in Scotland. I mean, I grew up in Glasgow. There were two tribes, the Rangers tribe and the Celtic tribe, the Protestants and the Catholics. The Reformation, the the wars of religion were still going on in Glasgow uh, until about the 1970s. So what is interesting is that in its original form, a tribe is not especially large. They can be connected clans. But broadly speaking, we're designed to to belong to tribes that aren't too large. This is the Dunbar number. There's a finite number of people you can really know. I mean, ask yourself, how many holiday cards do you send? If it's more than 100, you're kidding yourself. Those people can't be your friends. You only really have 100 people who are your friends. Uh, And that's what's fascinating about, about the giant online networks. They have created the illusion of mass friendship and mass tribes. How can anybody have millions of Facebook friends? That seems insane. It is insane. So I think the great danger in the world today is that the online network platforms are allowing a tribalism on a new scale to be possible. To me, one of the most disturbing features of the internet in American politics is the polarization that we see. There's some great uh, analysis, I quote some of it in the book, showing how on Facebook uh, or on Twitter, two clusters have formed, a liberal cluster and a conservative cluster, and they're remarkably separate from each other. You'll have heard this phrase, uh, filter bubble, or echo chamber. President Obama was talking about it to David Letterman just the other day. Why is that? Well, the answer is that the algorithms used by Facebook and by Twitter encourage you to form tribes. Not only that, but to make your tribe more radical over time. Here's a great statistic. On Twitter... Essentially, conservatives retweet conservatives and liberals retweet liberals. There's a little bit of cross-pollination, but amazingly little. But get this. If you're on Twitter and you want to be retweeted, every moral or emotive word you use increases the probability of being retweeted 20%. Ever wondered why your Twitter feed is so rude? 
That's why. People are more likely to use Twitter politically if they're on the extremes of the political spectrum. Out-and-out conservatives, progressive liberals are more likely to do that than people in the middle ground. So we have a political tribalism that is being incentivized by the algorithms. And I think that's profoundly dangerous. And it's the thing that we must address. If we are not to suffer a fatal polarization in our body politic. Because this process doesn't just stop. There isn't some stable equilibrium that's reached. The clusters grow further apart and the violence of the language grows more extreme. Let me take another question. Oh, let's see. I'm going to find one about which I can say something. Interesting. Do you think two questions have come up about net neutrality? Uh, do you think revocation of net neutrality is a threat uh, toward a movement to hierarchy? Was one uh, version of the question? There was another. If you've followed this debate on net neutrality, I think you've probably been drawn into some very artful propaganda. Uh, are put up by the big technology companies of Silicon Valley. The idea that net neutrality is a protection of free speech uh, is a compelling argument, but I think a bogus one. What is really at issue in this argument is a contest between the tech companies and the ISP, the Internet Service Providers. And what the Internet Service Providers, the Verizons and Comcasts just managed to do uh, was to take away an advantage that had been enjoyed by the tech companies. And a lot of us were drawn into a propaganda battle that was really about corporate market share. So I think net neutrality in some measure is a, a red herring. Uh, it already did not entirely exist as advertised because Netflix already has special arrangements that privilege its extraordinarily bulky content over other content. So if you were reading articles in the New York Times about net neutrality, saying that its repeal would lead to the end of civilization as we know it, you may have noticed that civilization is still more or less intact and the internet appears to be running more or less normally. I think this was something of a phony debate and the real argument was between two sets of big corporations. As you probably noticed, the internet lends itself to large quasi-monopoly companies. Why is this? And should they be broken up? This is a an argument that one frequently hears. I think antitrust is not going to turn Amazon into multiple baby Amazons. I think we can rule that scenario out. And if you mention it to Jeff Bezos, he looks super relaxed, like, our lawyers have so got this. Please bring it on. It will be a bloodbath, and we will win. Why? I think because the whole law of, of antitrust is essentially set tests of consumer benefit or harm that Amazon will pass with flying colors, as will the other technology companies. In two-sided markets of the sort that the internet allows, there is a natural tendency for one big player to be the winner that takes all. I remember Eric Schmidt explaining this to me over dinner. He said, you know about Zipf's law, don't you, Neil? And I said, kind of, sort of. 
Zip's law essentially says that in these markets, the winner gets 90%, the runner-up gets 9%, and everybody else shares 0.9%. And that is the way that the technology industry works. A whole bunch of more or less natural monopolies arise. I don't think antitrust is the way to deal with this. The real issue, and this is a key point I want you to think about, is whether there is a level playing field between different kinds of content publisher. You see, there's a strange anomaly that dates back to the 1990s that you may not be aware of. Uh, Section 230, Title 230 of the Communications and Decency Act says that technology companies won't be held liable for the content that appears on their platforms the way they would be if they were media publishers. This is a huge anomaly, and it means that the tech companies have had a massive advantage over traditional publishers for 20 years, and guess what they've done with that? That's right, established near dominance of online advertising and become a massive content publisher. Facebook is the biggest publisher of content in the history of humanity, and yet it is regulated as if it's a technology platform with no liability for the content that appears via Facebook. That's the issue, much more important than net neutrality. It's section 230. I think I've got time for a couple more questions, if you'll bear with me. This way of doing it with cards is kind of safe. (laughs) But I I miss the guy who gets the microphone and... Really goes for it because that gives me a rest. <laughs> People think I'm bothered when somebody's ranting away at the microphone. I'm like, Whew. keep going. You're losing the audience. I'm having a drink. Oh, I love this question. And this would have sounded better from the microphone, sir or madam. With modern civilization so dependent on modern networks, financial, political, social, what would happen in the event of a massive cyber attack that destroys or severely damages these networks? Could civilization as we know it survive? Excellent question. Excellent question. I, you know what? This is a great question, whoever asked it. Cyber warfare is a permanent state. It is happening now. The gentleman nodding off on the third row is unaware that his company is under cyber attack now. Now. Right now. Because it's all the time. State actors and non-state actors are trying to hack major corporations every day of the week. And it is incessant and most of it is just espionage. So when we talk about cyber warfare, we tend to conflate a bunch of different things. If it's just the Chinese trying to steal your intellectual property, that's just low-grade online theft. The question, however, asks about a different kind of warfare, one that would be designed to disrupt fundamental infrastructure through technology, through a virus or some other malware that stopped stuff working. Well, we invented this whole concept. It was essentially uh, an American innovation, not fully realizing that we were probably more vulnerable to cyber attack than anybody else because we have more that is attackable 
than anybody else and rely more on technology for our infrastructure than anybody else. And this is why it's such a good question. Because if you think the Russians don't spend a large proportion of every day trying to figure out how they could really screw with our vital infrastructure through cyber warfare, you don't understand Vladimir Putin at all. That would be the ultimate success for Russia's military comeback. And we have to take it very seriously. Those people who work in this area, like Mike Hayden, for example, who I gather is going to publish an extraordinary book uh, at some point this year on the issue, know that this is the frontier that will be decisive in the next great conflict. And because time's running out, and I never, ever overrun, I'm going to leave you with this sobering thought. There's a network of people who work on national security. I know that network quite well. You encounter them at Harvard or in Washington. Most of them are steeped in nuclear strategy. They cut their teeth thinking about nuclear deterrence. And they would love to find a theory of deterrence for cyber warfare. They will never find one. There is no deterrence possible in cyber warfare. And that means we need an entirely new conceptual framework to prevent our network society being tipped over into collapse by a successful attack on all the key nodes. For what it's worth, I think we need, as a priority, a convention on cyber warfare, and we need to get the Russians to sign it. In the same way that we had conventions on biological warfare and on chemical warfare, only a convention on cyber warfare that deters the Russians through collective moral pressure is going to stop this from happening. But we're a long way from that. And it seems to me that this is why understanding networks is so crucially important in our time. We have built a network society, but networks are not good at defense. They're good at creativity. They're poor at security. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why, for most of history, we've organized ourselves hierarchically and not through giant social networks. With that, I will thank you all very much indeed for your attention. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.